We are at the end of our series in this sermon series called The Game of Life, and today we're gonna concentrate on the question of what constitutes winning or losing in the game of life. And there are several components in this particular truth today. The first one we're gonna look at, you probably learned as a kid growing up, and I wanna see how well you remember it. It's not whether you win or lose, but... See, you do remember. It's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. And you say, that's not in the Bible. Well, actually, it's all over the Bible. And it's one of the major themes of the entire scripture, even though it might not be captured in the same phrase or the same wording. We know this is true in our heads, but we don't practice it in our hearts And some really struggle in remembering this. So sometimes we get so intent on winning the game, we forget the point of the game anyway. When it comes to playing the Milton Bradley version of the game of life, the point is not to see who has the most paper money by the time you're done. The point is to enjoy playing the game with your friends and family. The point is to have fellowship, not to drive them away so they never invite you back to play again. And in many ways, that's what we often find in life. We get so focused on what we think winning might be about that we forget the point of the game altogether. One person who figured out this truth was the author that we know as the teacher, the teacher, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we briefly mentioned this last week in our scripture, but, but at the end, the author comes to the end of his life and he looks it all over and he's, what he's amassed and what he's attained and he realizes that everything he's pursued has been a chasing after the wind. All the things he's been pursuing throughout his entire life now seem meaningless. Everything he had and yet still felt unsatisfied. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that we were made for something else and that winning and losing in life is not about how much you end up with, whether it's wisdom or pleasure or power or money or fame. A glimpses throughout the book, the disillusioned teacher begins to lay out what he's learned and about its meaning and where to find satisfaction. In Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse 24, it says, people can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Now what he's saying here is that instead of thinking that your whole life is about pursuing the next big thing. Whether it's a big vacation or a big promotion or a big car or house or your dreams or a certain kind of retirement, he says, no, take every day and recognize every day is a gift. Every day is a moment where you have an opportunity to experience life to the fullest, knowing that each moment comes from the hand of God. You recognize that each moment is meant to be a gift. Take this moment and live fully into it. Our Vacation Bible School theme this past few weeks was amped living fully alive. 
And we invite our children to understand what it is to live fully in love, to embrace the life that God has given them and enjoy each moment. But you know, I appreciate this bit of wisdom found in Ecclesiastes and in our teaching, but I struggle with it. I tend to always have my head in the future. I've got the rest of my life planned out, what I'd like to see. I have a checklist. I have a notebook of just list of what is going to happen. I'm, I'm thinking about what we're going to do in the next project of the church and the number of people we want to reach with our missions and our ministries. And I get excited about the things that plan for my family, about the trip we have planned today, leaving as soon as this service is over. So I need to hurry up, right? No. The writer of Ecclesiastes and the word that God speaks to me says, can you just enjoy this day? Instead of always thinking about what's gonna happen in the future, can you accept the gift that God has given you right now? And I find that as a challenge for me and part of what I've come to realize especially in moments in our life is where there's significant change is you pause and you recognize that fact that you may have missed out on some really important things happening in the moment while you're focused on the future. I wanna share with you another passage from Ecclesiastes chapter four, beginning in verse seven. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. And then he says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor if they fall down, they can help each other up. But pity those who fall and have no one to help them up. So are you focused so much on your career or your future or your dreams that you fail to spend time in the now? Cultivating relationships with people, taking time with others around you. And so our first rule in this game of life is it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. And the second is this, that people come before possessions or positions. People should come before possessions and positions. Otherwise, you might find yourself someday moving toward the end of your game of life and realize that there is no one left to share it. People before positions, people before possessions. And we look at this truth as we move from the teacher in Ecclesiastes to the master of Jesus Christ in Matthew 16. And we find the focus of our scripture today. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact of his imminent death. And you see, the disciples were not really prepared for that. That wasn't what they had in mind when they signed up to follow Christ. They left their fishing business and they left their tax collecting business to follow Jesus because he was the king, the Messiah. 
And when he came into his power, man, would they be in. This was a great career path. This is following the chosen one. He, they would be on his right and his left when he claimed authority as the Messiah in Jerusalem. Except now Jesus turned to them and said, when we are heading into Jerusalem and there the Son of Man will suffer, he will be despised and rejected and put to death. And the disciples are like, no, this is not how it's supposed to work. This is not what we signed up for. Peter even says to him, Lord, may it never be so. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, because this is the path that I'm traveling. And part of what he's reminding us here is that when we are pursuing life, real life, when we seek to win at life, sometimes it's hard. There are two paths, one that's broad and wide and it leads to destruction and the other is narrow and difficult, but it leads to life. And most people take the broad and wide path because they want the easy way. And Jesus says, it's not always easy following after me. It's hard sometimes. And then he gives them this passage of scripture before us today. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Sometimes when we are in the process of gaining the whole world, we get so busy that there's no time for anything else. That's what I find sometimes in my own life if I'm not careful. So you're so busy that there's no time to read the Bible anymore, right? It would take five minutes and you don't have five minutes. And you find yourself so busy that you don't really have time to pray anymore like you used to. And and going to to small group or to life group or even Bible study, I, I can't really commit to that anymore because I'm just too busy. And then pretty soon, the only time you have left to get work done to achieve your goals in life is Sunday morning. And church is so lost and pretty soon God is really distant. No longer is God restoring your soul as the shepherd of your soul. You've lost your soul in the process of gaining the world. That's part of the reason why I find this verse so important. What good will it be for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? So how do we not lose our soul? Jesus asks us these great questions and yet they haunt us. How do we not lose our soul Well, Jesus gives us the answer in this passage of scripture. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
Deny yourself. That means you know what? My life is not gonna be focused on everything I want. My life is not going to be focused on bringing as much pleasure into my life as possible. I'm not gonna focus on me anymore. I'm going to deny myself. I'm gonna focus first on God's will and then on living that out toward others. I'm going to really be more interested in how I can bless you than what I, what you can do for me. I'm going to be more interested in how I can serve rather than be served. And Jesus repeats this over and over again. He says, the one who would be great among you must be your servant. He said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Or in this particular case, he says, the one who would gain their life should be willing to lose it. So it's the process of giving your life away. Even the people that created the game, the Milton Bradley game of life understood this. So when you're playing the game of life, it's interesting. There are places you land on and they're called life spaces. And the life spaces are different from anything else in this game. The rest are either about earning money or paying money out for things like taxes, lawsuits, hospital bills, or whatever it may be. But life spaces, here's, here's one of them. Volunteer at the soup kitchen. You can do this, that this week on Thursday at Rebecca's Cafe. Another one says learn CPR so you can save someone else's life. Another says donate to African orphans, pay $40,000. By the way, if you would like to do something like that this morning, see me after the service. We'd love to find a way for you to help out in that area. But I find it fascinating that in this game, which is about gaining property and money, the makers of the game recognize that life spaces, where life is really found, is not in taking, but rather in giving back. So deny yourself. And then Jesus says, take up your cross, which is a willingness to sacrifice, it's a willingness to give of yourself for someone else, which again is what we just talked about. And then finally, following Jesus, that's knowing him personally, talking with Christ, seeking to live your life for him. Following him means opening up the scriptures and reading what he actually is saying and then trying to live the path, the life that he lived before us. And in these three things we find our soul, our life has been restored, it's where we find life. Do you realize when you join Pittman Park, when you join the Methodist Church, you commit to five things. Your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness. And in these five things, you become the hands and feet, the voice of Christ and you can serve, you connect, you become more like Christ and follow closely. 
You open the scriptures and learn new things. You serve others, and in doing so, you find your soul. And we share the good news of what we've learned, and that brings us hope because we want to bring hope to others. John Ortberg wrote a book a number of years ago entitled, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. It's a great little book, and in it he tells many stories, and one struck me as we think about what constitutes winning at the game of life. It's the story of Armand Hammer, not the baking soda, but an actual multi-billionaire who was president and CEO of a petroleum company for many years. USA Today called him a giant of capitalism and a confidant of world leaders. He was a towering figure in the world scene. But after his death at the age of 92, the true story came out about this man. He got his start laundering money for the Soviets And after he made some money, he paid writers to write fictitious autobiographies of his life to impress other people. When he was a young man, almost ready to graduate from medical school, he performed an abortion on a young woman and she died during the procedure. His father took the blame for this and spent two years in prison while his son never spoke up to say it was really him who had done this. He neglected his only son And he never claimed responsibility for a young woman who was conceived out of wedlock, never claimed her as his daughter. He had no friends at his company where he freely fired executives. And when his brother died, he sued his brother's estate for $677,000 of the 700,000 estate, keeping the money from his brother's wife who was in a nursing home and his brother's children. When he died, his only son didn't attend his funeral, and the only people who would carry his casket were the people who were paid to take care of him in his home. So here's the question. Hammer was a multi-billionaire tycoon, world-renowned leader, but did he win or lose in the game of life? Now there's another contrasting picture And it was in the news several years ago. It's a story of a young woman named Sarah Toloski. Sarah was playing Division II softball championship. She played for Western Oregon, and they were playing Central Washington. And I remember this story mainly because I was into softball at the time, but she stepped to the plate for her turn at bat, and she hit her first ever home run in college softball in the championship. It's very exciting. And she takes off running to first base and as she approaches the bag, she hears a pop in her knee and she falls to the ground, unable to walk. The trainers rush onto the field and the umpire gently stops them and told them with pain in his voice, officially this run will not count unless she physically touches each base. So her teammates want to come out and they carry her around the bases, but again, the umpire stops them and painfully explains it doesn't work. She has to do it. And if you touch her, it won't count and you forfeit the game. And so spontaneously, the young women from the opposing team run over to her and pick her up and begin to carry their opponent around the bases 
And from there, the central, women from Central are carrying the player from Western around the bases until she scores her first home run in college softball. And the girls from Central who carried her around the bases lost the game. But I'm just curious, which ones do you really think won in the game of life? Why do you think people still remember this years later? Do they remember the team that won the game or the girls who carried the opponent around the base even though they lost? Are you winning or losing in the game of life? How are you seeking to serve God? Do you remember the people are more important than possessions or position? One last little epilogue to this message. As I was thinking about the game of life and the coming to the end of the game of life, the amazing part is this game of life is just the qualifying round for the great game which goes on forever in the kingdom of heaven. You may have read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And you get to the last book in the series and you've heard the stories of the children who go back and forth to Narnia. And at the end of the last book, they die in a tragic train accident. And then the children wake up in the kingdom of heaven. And this is the epilogue for the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis writes these words. The things that began to happen after that day were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and which every chapter is better than the one before. Ecclesiastes ends with these words. The teacher says, here's the conclusion of the matter. Revere God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of every human being. And Jesus said it this way, if any would be my disciples, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's not whether you win or lose, at least not measured by money of world, power, or pleasure, but it's how you play the game. And I invite you to follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Will you join with me as we pray? God, there are too many times in life where we have blown it, where we've been too focused on the future and not lived in the present, where we've cared more about success or power or positions or wealth or pleasure than people. Too many times when we have lived for self. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to honor you and live for you, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow you, that our life may be the message for others to see and to grow in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.